The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. In this edition, my colleagues in London will discuss the UK's Brexit mess as political parties fragment and businesses start leaving. Then, Anthony Curry will talk with Amy Donnellan about how vegan and vegetarian diets are benefiting from climate change. Welcome to the Breaking Views podcast. This is Swaha Patanaik in London, and I'm joined today by Neil Unmack and Liam Proud, both of whom are writing about Brexit-related issues. Neil, may I kick off with you? Could you just sort of lay out the state of play for us? Because things have been in flux for a long time, but it's coming to a head. Sure, well, things are coming to a head. Theresa May is in Brussels trying to negotiate uh, a better deal, part of her withdrawal deal. That may, she may not achieve very much, but back home... Uh, a lot is happening in that the uh, Labour Party, the, the left-leaning opposition party, is fragmenting, um, and so too is the Conservative Party, because several MPs have broken away from both. And does this actually pose a risk to the government, uh, its majority or her ability to pass? Is there anything we can tell about whether she's more or less likely to get a deal through? Yep. Potentially it could, but a lot needs to happen. So there is a large block of voters that don't support Brexit and there is a large block of MPs in both parties that don't support Brexit and therefore this uh, movement of some, or the splintering of some moderate anti-Brexit MPs could create a strong centrist party that could shape or even oppose Brexit. However, the problem is that so far there are relatively few of them, there are about 11. Um, They don't have uh, a clear leader, they don't have a clear agenda, it hasn't been run particularly well. Um, and the UK electoral system does not make it easy for small parties to thrive because of the winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system. So in some ways, um, uh, you know, it, it could make a big difference, but at least in terms of Theresa May's ability to get her deal through Parliament, so far it probably won't change it dramatically because there are only uh, 11 of them or so, and they, they probably would have opposed the deal anyway and therefore um, it doesn't change the calculus, at least in the very short term. Absolutely, and as I make out, they they can't decide whether they're a party or a movement yet, so (laughs) quite. And the policy document they put forward was extremely vague on Mm -hmm. a lot of, I mean, the the Brexit line was just, it was like a throwaway thing on the second page. And I think that reflects the the challenges that they face in in that they they want to soak up people from left and right, and so therefore they've kept things deliberately vague. Um, that will, will make it harder for them to actually sort of coalesce around a clear, a clear strategy and a clear mandate. And on Brexit, they haven't so far actually said that much. And that also reflects the fact that many of them have Brexit supporting voters in their constituencies. And therefore, mm. whilst the principles may feel very strongly about Brexit, they may suffer from the same challenges that the two parties face, which is a thoroughly divided and confused country. Mm-hmm. Mm. In the meantime, business, Liam, is trying to navigate uh, through all yes. of this. What's going on in one of the fields that you have been looking at, which is the motor industry? So the car industry is usually seen, I think correctly, as one of the most <coughs> sensitive to Brexit. And the reason for that is that EU uh, tariffs on the auto industry, if you don't have a trade deal, are 10%, which is Enormous, obviously. You know, if you're talking about a forty thousand pound car, that's four grand on the price of a car. But it's also the parts going back and forth each time. Exactly, and then I mean, you look at the way these car plants in the UK operate. I mean, they've literally got millions of parts coming in and out of them every day. Um, the Nissan one in Sunderland is extremely slick, operates at you know kind of high ninety percent of its capacity, which is just a kind of you know nerdy auto industry way of saying it's a very good factory. Now, the question they will have to deal with is 
because they're making so many cars in the UK and selling so many of those cars in Europe, um, will they still be able to do that? Will that be a kind of rational economic choice um, if there's no deal? Probably not. So how do you mitigate those risks? Um, now, there's been these two decisions by uh, Nissan and Honda, who are two big Japanese car makers. Um, Honda will be shutting its Swindon plant, which employs about 3,500 people. Um, and, and the supply chain is even bigger. Isn't and it? the supply chain is, you know, multiples of that probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sunderland is, has reneged on a previous pledge to make a new um, sports utility vehicle in Sunderland. And so how much are either of these two deals to do with Brexit? Because there are bigger things at play as well in the EU-Japan trade deal, which would make zero tariffs between cars coming from Japan. So is this really about Brexit? So the companies quite clearly say this is not directly driven by Brexit. And I think you should take them at their word on that point. Um, The Sunderland-Nissan decision was basically a function of the fact that they were going to build a bunch of diesel cars um, and no one buys diesel cars anymore. Uh, to radically simplify things. So they thought, well, if we might as well, if we're building electric ones, we might as well do it in our factory in Japan where we put a load of electric ones. Honda, similarly, it was a very underperforming factory. It was operating at about 50% capacity, uh, 50 to 60%. You probably need 80% at a plant to break even, otherwise it's, it's, it's losing you money. So that was, you know, if you speak to people who followed Honda, they, they were always going to shut that plant. However, Indirectly, I think you can tell a story about Brexit here, which is that Europe and Japan have signed this trade deal, which will eventually eliminate tariffs. Um, So this 10% tariff would just not be a threat if you're making cars in Japan and sending them to Europe. So it it highlights the importance of trade and the importance of kind of free flow of goods, even if the, the direct cause isn't, you know, imminent problems around Brexit. Perfect. I'm going to give both of you a quick fire round. Two questions, yes or no, for each. So <laughs> scary. I know. Um, Neil, deal or no deal by March 29th? Um, uh, I, I well. <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> uh, I regret to say I think there will be a deal. Okay. Um, All right. And Liam, more political question for you. Yeah. Uh, general election or second referendum? Um, I think neither. I agree that it's quite likely there will be a deal. I think Theresa May is correctly assess that if she runs a clock down, um, the opponents of her deal will eventually fold. Okay, great. Thank you both very much. And we'll round it up there from London. For uh, Neil, Liam and myself, Swaha Pashnaik, Breaking Views, thank you very much. Veganism is not a fad, at least from a diet perspective. That's uh, what Amy Donnellan, our correspondent in London, who's been looking at this, is saying, and she's comparing it to the likes of the Atkins diet and others, uh, where the fads kind of died out or seem to die out after a while. Amy, thanks for coming back on the show. Great to have you on. Thanks very much, Anthony. So, Amy, your, your, your point of this is that veganism is not just about um, whether people want to eat meat or not. It becomes a far greater issue of, look, people are thinking about animal welfare, yes, which has always been an issue there, but they're thinking more about water use, greenhouse gas emissions, climate change. Um, Why don't you put this in perspective for us? Why is it you're thinking about this now? I mean, some of these issues have been around on and off for a while, but why is it now that this is becoming an issue, do you think? Yeah. I mean, what we've really seen uh, over the past year, basically, is the kind of grim reality of industrial farming has been kind of Mm. laid bare on documentaries on Netflix. Uh, It's definitely got the conversation going about whether people should be eating as much meat as they are or have been in the past. 
Um, and then essentially what you've seen is companies kind of recognizing that certainly young millennials are interested in um, you know, preventing any further climate change. So what we've seen is, and in the past few months, is McDonald's launched a vegetarian Happy Meal, so moving far away from its you know, burgers and chicken fare. Right. Um, you've had the likes of KKR, the big private equity house. They uh, bought Unilever's Spreads business, which kind of raised a lot of eyebrows at the time, uh, but it really did seem to be going for this kind of plant-based products that they thought were going to be um, a big growth area. Um, and in the UK, I know it's not, uh, it's not probably um, a company that your American listeners know very well, but um, there is a company called Greggs, which, which is a bakery chain, very famous right. for their flaky sausage rolls. So uh, basically, since the start of January, they're saying that the vegan sausage roll has contributed to 10% sales growth. So it's not so much that everyone is going out and buying their vegan sausage rolls, it's that they've actually had a new type of customer coming into their stores. Uh, attracted by this kind of ethical thing that they're doing. Um, and what you, you know, you, I mean, if you kind of move away from the companies, it is also certainly getting a bit of a cool element to it. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, big celebrity, uh, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, these are people who are big endorsers of the vegan lifestyle. The vegan product you're talking about, uh, uh, Greg's, is that is that like I mean, you, you mentioned plant-based as well? Is this like the the the, the um, Beyond Meats burger or the Impossible Burger that we see over here, where it's meant to to look, feel, and taste as much like meat as as possible, uh, rather than saying let's do a tofu burger or let's put a bunch of vegetables together and mash it up and make a, a veggie burger, which we've seen for ages? Is it, are you talking more about the the new plant-based? must be like meat variety it's i don't think it's so much exactly like meat because it's corn based which again is is just one of these companies that is a kind of protein type Mm. um you know the product that goes into i mean you can make kind of spaghetti bolognese it's supposed to basically take up the kind of the um the flavors that you're having in 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 the rest of your meal so um they spent 18 months though developing that product uh, with corn, Greg's did, um, and what we, you know, I did have a chat with corn as well, uh, and they were saying that essentially it takes a really long time to develop these types of products, these vegan products, because in order to make it palatable for customers, it, it takes a huge amount of testing, and mm. as you said, you know, it's it's not going to be a juicy meat burger; it's going to be something different. So, um, let's say a fish, like an alternative to fish, fish fingers, can take up to five years. They said. So where do you see this going? I mean, I mentioned um, Beyond Meats, which has got the Beyond Burger, and I think you mentioned them in your piece, and and growth there has been, I suppose, exponential is a pretty good word for it, but it's still relatively small, right? Yes, it is. It is small. And even if you look at the kind of the supermarket chains, I mean, they have also seen this craze and have started allocating more shelf space to uh, lots of different free from, uh, so it could be free from dairy, free from meat, uh, and they are all talking this this sector up. They're talking mm. about a lot of the growth, but it is still really minimal in terms of how much it's contributing to their sales, and very minimal co- compared to how much meat the, the the growth of the meat industry. Um, do they see that? Do they see? So they think the growth of the meat industry still out, outstrips the growth of this 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 new industry, or they it's just the size you think is the is it's the, the size. Sorry, it is actually yeah. the size of the of the meat industry is just completely dwarfing anything that you would see in the kind of in this either meat free or protein based uh, products. What, what you think will will push this market to grow to a size where it competes? I'm not saying fifty fifty, but where it becomes a much larger part of the market. 
Well, I think I think the demographics are really kind of helping this this uh, this you might, you might call it a diet out. I mean, in the UK, you're seeing um, they, you know there was a recent survey out that said that 60% of university students want to see vegan or vegetarian options in their university campuses, and they really are the future. And if you look at countries that you really wouldn't expect a lot of kind of vegan growth, um, I mean, France, famous for foie gras and and a lot of kind of very some would say unethical practices for, for animal welfare, um, mm. they have seen a huge uptick in uh, vegan and vegetarian growth and they're expecting about 17% growth from now until 2021 in that sector. So I think the staying power is that this is kind of, this is going, this is going global, it's going to lots of different countries, uh, particularly in the West where people mm. are becoming much more concerned um, about their own health as well. So that's why the, the kind of comparison to Atkins was Atkins had this, you know, this huge surge in the early 2000s. It was seen as, yeah. a, as an easy way of losing weight. Uh, ironically, the, the big push was um, to actually eat meat and eat dairy. Uh, yes. But this is obviously very different to that. And this has the added component of you can feel like you are actually helping the planet by yeah. adopting this lifestyle. And even if you are looking to invest in these kind of companies, thinking that this is really going to uh, be a massive growth area and these stocks are going to go through the roof, you are limited. I mean, the Beyond Meat IPO, that will be kind of one of the first examples that you will get a chance to, to really buy into a company um, that, has, that has just a vegan offering. Uh, yeah. There are other companies that do kind of, you know, they do almond milk or soya milk, but they also do meat products. So you're not getting that complete 100% uh, vegan exposure. Those are good points, Amy. I think look, the Beyond Meat IPO we mentioned a couple of times. I think they listed late last year their their desire to fight, to go public, and I think that that maybe happens this year. As I dimly recall, they just got the the burger at the moment. They want to expand into other products. Um, but you're right, as the only company out there that would be publicly traded, I think, I mean, we're, we may be missing one, but it's going to be the big one out there. Mm. But you know, other companies, too, are, uh, like you said, they may be trying to tap into this, which is fine, right? I mean, you, you want to see your regular meat companies tap into new markets that may well help push this as well. Absolutely. And, and one thing that I, I, mean, I didn't touch on in, in the piece that we wrote, and I think that you guys have been looking at a lot, Anthony, is just what are exactly our shareholders doing to the more traditional food companies and the meat industry, how they're kind of pushing back uh, against, you know, this kind of excessive water use or greenhouse yeah. gases that they're contributing. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so one of the ones we looked at last year was like the big example of a, sh a shareholder revolt of sorts was at Tyson Foods, which is one of the suppliers where I think more than 60% of independent shareholders voted in favour of a resolution brought by other shareholders saying, look, you've got to give us more information about your greenhouse gas and water issues because you keep on mucking up and you keep getting fined and it's not good for the environment, it's not good for the company, it's a big risk for shareholders longer term. And so shareholders voted in favour of it, but unfortunately the family uh, controls 70% of the vote. So the vote was overturned, but then um, they actually, the good thing is they sat down with shareholders afterwards and, and said, look, we'll come up with a plan, we'll do something. So you saw that, and they were at the bottom or near the bottom of one of these rankings done by this investor lobby group up in Boston called Ceres, uh, which looks at various issues you know, from, from electric vehicles to water to uh, forestry to greenhouse gases. They're all over the place on this. It's, well, should I say that? They're all over this like a rash. 
And they this year have combined with investors with six and a half trillion dollars of assets under management to try and pressure the big fast food companies in America to go after suppliers like Tyson to set bigger targets. Because as Sarah's discovered in their research, a lot of these companies just aren't doing enough. So you've got all these people now saying to who is it? McDonald's, Domino's, Burger King, Chipotle, Wendy's, KFC, Pizza Hut. You know, there's a lot of uh, fast food companies here. And I think their stat was 85 million Americans on any given day eat fast food. So there's a big ability here just in this group to say, guys, we know you're interested in this stuff. We know McDonald's has got products out there, as you were saying, Amy. So why don't you start pushing your suppliers to be better stewards of water, better stewards of greenhouse gas emissions, it just makes more sense, right? And if you can get the supply chain more aligned, then maybe, I'm not saying this is going to stop people from wanting to be vegan at all. I think there are many reasons why people are choosing it, like you said. But that is one way, at least on the environmental side, of showing you're trying to do something with the products that already exist. Absolutely. You know, I think that's absolutely the case. And I mean, with kind of, you know, diets and fads, you know, there is always a, a chance that, you know, things go into reverse or people decide that actually meat and dairy, some big study comes out and says, actually, this is this is way better for you than we thought. Yeah. Um, but I do think you're right. I think it's sort of the environmental, it's the social issues that are attached to this particular trend that we're seeing that kind of means that it has more lasting staying power. Okay, Amy, thanks for coming on the show and and helping us talk through that. I'm sure, look, as Beyond Meats and other companies get more involved in this, we'll get you back on the show to see how everything's progressing. Until then, uh, thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Anthony. That's our show for this week. On behalf of Anthony Curry and myself, I would like to thank our guests, Swaha Patanaik, Liam Proud, Neil Unmack, and Amy Donnellan. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.